Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast about how our political institutions are broken and ideas for fixing them. My name is James Walner, and I'm a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. And I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. Well, Lee, here we are. Here we are. On the cusp of a big debate in the House and the Senate and the White House and in the nation over the debt limit, right? The debt limit needs to be raised yet again. And just a little state of play, and I, I want to talk about the debt limit, and I want to talk about the idea of using it for leverage and to obtain other policy concessions and whether or not that makes sense. And I want to hear what you think about it. But I, w- I thought we would give our listeners a little kind of backstory here on where we are in this specific debate. Do you want to do that, or would you like me to kind of walk through where we currently or presently stand? I would like you to raise the roof, James. I want to hear what you have to say about your take on where we are and why we're here. Well, this is one of those this is one of those uh, cliffs, if you will, or a train coming at us, whatever the metaphor is that that you prefer. It's one of those things that we've seen coming for a, a long time now. In fact, the nation reached its statutory limit on on how much money it can borrow months ago now, and since that time, we've managed to remain below that statutory limit and continue to uh, basically borrow money and fund things that are happening that we need to fund and and to spend money at the federal level uh, by engaging in a series of so-called extraordinary measures. Perhaps we can talk about those later. But those extraordinary measures only last for so long. And it looks like all of the estimates are that the the date at which we can no longer maintain our present operating uh, budget and remain below that debt limit level uh, is sometime in June. And so Congress, being Congress, they don't like to do things ahead of time, right? They don't like to plan ahead. They don't like to, you know, take you know, action early to avoid crisis negotiations at the last minute. In fact, they prefer those crisis negotiations. And that's where we are, right? We're right up against this deadline that's coming at us. And the House only just last week passed legislation to increase the debt limit. And it's and House Republicans are insisting on attaching a, a bunch of spending cuts, deficit reduction proposals to that debt limit increase to change the trajectory of, of America's fiscal policy to lower the debt and deficit. Senate Democrats, President Biden, on the other hand, are, are pushing for a clean debt ceiling increase, debt limit increase, and they are refusing to negotiate negotiate with Republicans over the debt limit. They say, we'll talk, we'll sit down with you, but we're not going to talk about the debt. We're not going to talk about attaching spending cuts to the debt limit as a way to pass it, in essence. And so we've been in a bit of a standoff. The House has passed their legislation. It now goes, as everyone knows from Schoolhouse Rock, where, you know, how a bill becomes a law, it now goes to the Senate. The Senate has to figure out what to do. And it looks like Senate Democrats may have some hearings on on this bill in an effort to kind of raise the certain aspects of it publicly so that they can kind of poke holes in it as they see it and make it harder for Senate Republicans to support it. Uh, but we still don't know what Senate Democrats are going to counter with. And of course, Congress has to, uh, both the House and Senate have to agree on the same bill before it can ultimately be sent and presented to the president to be signed into law. So that's where we are. I don't know where we go from there, but that's where we are. What did I miss? Well, I think there's two big questions. One is the question that everybody is trying to figure out, which is, is this the 
time that we finally go off the edge. Uh, but that's that's not a question for our podcast. I think the question for our podcast is, should we be having this fight in the first place? And does it reflect something that's wrong with our political system or maybe something you might think is right with our political system? Now, I think it's useful to just put things in context a little bit. The U.S. is the only country in the world that regularly puts this up to a vote of Congress, whether we should raise our our debt ceiling. Uh, Few other countries that occasionally do this, I think Denmark, uh, maybe a few other countries, but the U.S. is the only one that that does it regularly. And the reason we do it is a, a little bit of history that back in 1917, when we were getting into World War I, there was a fair amount of opposition, actually, to the U.S. joining Great Britain, a lot of German immigrants, a lot of Irish immigrants who were not so uh, enthused about us joining up with the British and the French. So Congress agreed that there would be this this debt ceiling that you Congress would have to vote to to raise it. So since then, uh, it's been raised periodically, and you know it seems like it it happens. Almost every year or two, uh, we go through this vote, and usually it's the party that is out of power in the White House that opposes it or tries to use it to extract some policy concessions. So there's this weird hypocrisy that keeps happening back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But mostly we, we as a country, Congress manages to come to some agreement. Uh, there were a couple times when we got pretty close to the edge, as uh, some of us may remember the uh, fights of 2011. I think you remember that intimately, James. And this has some resonances of that fight. And you know, I think there's a view that the party that opposes the, the president shouldn't shouldn't really play games with something as delicate as the full faith and credit of the United States. Uh, and that it could tank the markets, it could, could undermine the U.S. currency, it could undermine the global economy, and it's just, just not a subject for political brinksmanship. What, what say you, James? Well, my own view is that if something is within the realm of politics, if it's something that the people or their elected representatives have the authority and the power over uh, deciding in some way, then absolutely, yes, of course it is. Now, it may be used in, in poor ways time to time, but the idea that something is outside of politics that can be removed from politics is one that I find very troublesome. And so I think we think about can, you know, can Congress negotiate over the debt limit? Well, yeah, because it can pass the debt limit, right? I mean, the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8 gives the Congress, the House and Senate, the power over whether or not to borrow money, right? So all money borrowed has to come from a grant of power from Congress in that sense. So if the Treasury goes out hat in hand and says, hey, can I get a nickel to in a dime for something? Then they need permission from the Congress. Now, as you alluded to in 1917, uh, there's different ways of giving that permission. And, and you can give it on a case-by-case basis. You can give it for like one lump sum, or you can give it for a period of time, or you could presumably give it in perpetuity. 
And there's a lot of talk today about, quote unquote, abolishing the debt limit, which I think are it, that's really just the question about what's a different way that Congress can structure its giving permission to the executive branch to borrow money to make it less um problematic for some potentially. But can can you use it as leverage? Absolutely. I mean, and look, we have a long history of this. Right after we just we got going in this nation under the Constitution, right? We have this uh, negotiation and it turns out that the, the states allow for they that their state debts are assumed by the the federal treasury. And in response, some of the Southerners, many of whom, many of the Southern states had paid their Revolutionary War debts uh, ahead of time. Now, keep in mind, a lot of the war fighting was in the North, and so it was maybe they had a disproportionate debt to to pay off. But Southern states paid off their debts, but they got something in return for allowing the federal government, and now they're on the hook for it under the new constitution, to assume Massachusetts and other states' debt. They got the location of the capital on the Potomac, right? This is maybe we could say that's the ultimate earmark. We could also say that this is a, you know, this is bargaining. This is horse trading. This is in essence what politics is all about. It's about making decisions through bargaining and negotiation and persuasion. And if we don't make decisions about the debt limit that way, then I'm not sure what way we make them. And what I think it leads me to conclude is that somebody else is making them for us. And again, it may be wise or not to to use it as leverage, but I think that the the notion of being able to use it for leverage in a very abstract sense, of course, I think it's it's absolutely legitimate. All right. So here's where I get a little puzzled, which is that what what we're dealing with is the consequence of spending that has been authorized by previous Congresses, right? So a bunch of Republican congressmen, uh, maybe not entirely the same Republican congressmen, there's a kind of ship of Theseus thing going on here as the Republican caucus changes little by little. Uh, is it the same Republican caucus? But... <sighs> They authorized all this spending. They authorized a lot of it under Trump. Uh, and the tax rate was, was in fact, lowered. So the, the IRS was taking in less money and we were spending more money. So now there's a bunch of Republicans in Congress who say, oh, we authorized all this. But now, having authorized all this when our president was in power and we were in charge, now that your president is in power, we want dramatic cuts. So what gives there? That seems pretty lame to me. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think the first thing is you can't bind a future Congress. So the Congress in the 118th Congress today can't pass laws that then somehow bind the 120th Congress. And the 120th Congress is then no longer free and able to make its own decisions as to what should happen. And so I think that's an important thing. Now, the question is, yeah, the members there, one, we may have new members, as you alluded to, who who weren't part of those earlier decisions, or uh, maybe they're new conditions. Maybe things have changed, either economically, in the environment, politically, or whatever. And then also, but the last thing I would say is you can also just change your mind, right? I mean, current members can also make a different decision, a different calculation. All right. Well, I want to push you on both of those, but Absolutely. All right. So what's changed? Well, so we are assuming right now, I think, or you are assuming that 
the kind of current stance of uh, conservative Republicans in particular, and in the House in particular, and maybe in the Senate, is different than it was uh, when Trump was president and they had to raise the debt limit on two occasions. But if we think back to then, right, conservatives were very much opposed to Trump's debt limit, clean debt limit request. They didn't like the plans that were cobbled together. They spoke out against them. Uh, organizations like FreedomWorks would issue letters and, and say, look, and the movement in general was very much opposed to this, right? All of the no votes for Trump's first debt limit uh, increase in the Senate came from conservatives, came from Republicans. How many votes was that? It was something like 17. Okay. And so, but the, I guess the difference is I, the, the chairman of the RSC, Mark Walker, a Republican from North Carolina, opposed, wrote a letter opposing uh, any effort to tie a debt limit increase to Hurricane Harvey funding uh, relief, emergency relief. In September of 2017, I believe, is when this kind of plan or this big push was made. And so, yes, something has changed, but I'm not sure it's necessarily in the conservatives. Now, yeah, of course, there are conservatives out there, I'm sure, who have who are less likely to oppose deficit spending. Um, and certainly there are Republicans who are less likely to oppose deficit spending when their own party's doing it or when it's for things they like. And then they are, will oppose it when it's someone else. But I think what's changed is the president. And it's for a different reason, though. It's not that Trump is this, you know, the paterfamilias. He is the emperor and he can command and everybody has to obey. It's that conservatives, and they tried, for instance, with the Affordable Care Act repeal that right out of the gate in 2017, and they lost. And I think what you saw was that conservatives were very much opposed to a lot of things that the Trump administration either was doing or wasn't doing, but their ability to prevail on those things and to shift the entire party in the House and Senate to adopt their position was basically non-existent because they were having to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the president of their own party. Whereas today and in 2011, the key difference is that there is a president of the different party in the White House. And in the Senate, the Republicans, yes, they were technically in control in, uh, what, 2017, but they're not in control of the Senate now. So basically you have a lot of the pressures off, right? And so now conservatives are able to persuade maybe a lot of Republicans to come to them and say, look, we need to be more aggressive here. And so yeah, I think you're right. Things have changed, but I'm not necessarily sure that it's the conservative members who are pushing now are somehow pushing things that they weren't pushing in the past. But they're just willing perhaps to push a little bit further. So, but let's, let's hold on that for a second because well, I think they were the same. I mean, I think they were they were willing to push just as hard then. It was just that they were pushing against a, a heavier uh, or a more immovable object. I don't know what the metaphor is, but they were pushing against something that was harder for them to budge at the time than it is now. That's how the conditions can change. Well, they they could have they could have pushed harder, but let, let's just let's just take that aside for a second because I I, I don't think Republicans have a monopoly on hypocrisy or disingenuousness in this battle. And one thing that really struck me was how Democrats did not take advantage of the moment that they had when Congress passed a budget at the end of last year to raise the debt ceiling. And what's telling is, and this is a one of these like Politico back quotes, but a Biden advisor told Politico and I have this, although there is a grave risk to the economy, the gun is in the Republicans' hands, and there is little question to who will get blamed for this. So I think there was a, an element in which the Democrats made a reasonable calculation that 
Republicans were going to fight each other over what to do and and whether to support an increase. And this was going to look bad for the Republicans. And so Democrats said, you know what, we could solve this problem or we could push it to Republicans to to make them self-destruct over it. And this is fundamentally Biden's position is I'm not going to negotiate with you. You negotiate with yourselves and this will force a crack within the Republican Party. So I think I think Democrats and Republicans are both using this as leverage. But that's not I just want to say that's also not hypocritical, right? When you see politics is about means and ends, when you think about uh, the system is, is set up to give you what you want. If you want something that your opponent doesn't, it may be completely legitimate for you to engage in behavior that you then turn around and say it's illegitimate for your opponents to engage in in the future. And so, I, you know, I, I think that's a very destructive way of thinking about politics. And I think it explains a lot of our present dysfunction. You mean that hypocrisy is is OK? Or no, it's not because you're not being hypocritical, right? You're, or you're not being. It's OK when I do. I mean, I mean, look, I think hypocrisy. But you're not being hypocritical. I mean, you're like North Korea can't have a nuclear weapon. Why? Because they're North Korea. They're different than us. That's the kind of mentality that I'm talking about. And it's not hypocritical. It's a different way of thinking. It's an outcome oriented means and ends thinking. I don't want to defend it because I think it's even more destructive to the political process. And as I've said in past episodes here, I think it's this kind of production mindset. But anything goes that gets you what you want and anything doesn't go that gets your opponent what your opponent wants. I do think, I mean, we can argue whether or not it's inconsistent, but I mean, I, I do think consistency is perhaps the most overrated value in politics. And of course, people shift their stance situationally, like holding people to that level of consistency. You know, the world changes. I've changed my opinion on a bunch of things over the years. Anybody should change their opinion as as the situations change. I'll grant that. So I think you bring up points about conservatives having the same beliefs, but being in a different position. And obviously, a lot of what's going on now is a performative digging in, as was happening back in 2011, when we almost came to the brink before. So one of the things that that is always confusing, I think, for people to watch in politics is how much is performative versus how far people are really willing to take things when push comes to the proverbial shove. Let me just, I mean, jump in here. Politics is at its core a performative thing, right? Think about it. That's what it is. That's what it's all about. And we should not want it to be something else because once it becomes not performative, then it becomes, it's almost as if like, we can't know what's happening. We can't hold people accountable inside this process and we can't engage it. This is why, uh, you know, George Washington loved Cato. He loved going to the theater. The theater and politics have a very, they're, they're very similar in a lot of respects. And we often talk about hypocrisy. It, you know, if you think about it, it doesn't matter this disconnect between what someone believes and what they think and say and how they act, because ultimately it's what they think, say, and how they act that the voter sees and has to hold accountable. It's almost irrelevant what they think privately, if we kind of get down to it, as long as that, as long as they are performing, as long as they are acting in a way that we can see and make sense of. And I think that that's the big problem today 
with how we think about it is that we we try to make these decisions without performing. But there is a, a fair amount of performance and posturing happening, which is standard for any negotiation, right? Nobody starts a negotiation with, here's the offer I'm willing to accept. They go in saying, here's my final offer. I'm not going to budge, but privately they have something they're willing to accept. However, the question that you raise about accountability and voters holding politicians accountable. So the question is, which voters and accountable for what? Whichever voters go to the polls and for whatever they want to hold them accountable. For. No, but I mean, I mean, in this debt ceiling, right? I mean, that's in terms of the debt ceiling and the, the fight, right? So there, there's some amount of voters who are intense partisans or are getting intense partisan news and believe that anything that is a compromise is somehow capitulation, right? So to the extent that some of these members of Congress, be they Democrats or Republicans, privately they might say, look, I think we, sh we should obviously not tank the entire U.S. economy for this and whatever, but here here's what here's what what my constituents think so i have to represent this and i have to show them that i am fighting for this principle and i'm not going to compromise so so there's the performance that's oriented towards some audience who is going to come back and see the show next night if they like the performance and then there's the performance that's maybe oriented towards actually achieving some sort of policy goal of making the government spend less money. Well, but I think the only people that can make that determination is the audience, I think. But we think about this idea of compromise being a capitulation. I know a lot of people on the far left and the far right, and I've, ne I've never met anyone, not one person, I'm sure they exist, who expects that their member of the House of Representatives should have dictatorial power over the federal government and what it does. What they want to see is a fight. They want to see their concerns adjudicated. They want to see members who have spent decades telling them that they agree with them to actually try to make it happen as opposed to going behind closed doors, and you see this phenomenon on the left and right, going behind closed doors, coming out and saying, we settled this the best we can get. Well, you know, there's not a lot of trust anymore because of that absence of a performance. And when you have it, it's remarkable how uniting it can be. So in 2013, there's a government shutdown and Republican establishment types like John Boehner, the Speaker of the House and others privately and some publicly were very much opposed to the idea, thought it was a terrible idea. But Boehner unlike McConnell in the Senate, went all in with his House conservatives. And he went all in and he let them fight it out. In that process of going up, they ended up getting nothing for it. And then they had to raise the debt limit. They opened the government. The 2013 shutdown got, there was no policy concession they were able to obtain. But the House Republican conference heading into that debate was very much divided. Boehner was in a kind of a rocky position. Coming out of that debate, it was remarkable how united they were and how appreciative they were to John Boehner, someone that they would then turn around later on and oust, was basically giving them an opportunity 
to fight. And and I think people do have real concerns here. I mean, in 2011, we forget about the, you know, they're like, well, you were downgraded. Well, we forget there was an effort to pass a clean debt ceiling increase. Mitch McConnell's on this floor of the Senate. Democrats are calling for a clean debt ceiling increase. Um, others who think that we can't get any concessions whatsoever on taxes or spending, we need a clean debt ceiling increase. Well, Moody's and Standard & Poor's issue a letter and they say, if you pass a clean debt ceiling increase, we're going to downgrade you. In June, I think it was June of that year, maybe in May of 2011, we're going to downgrade you. This, and they outlined the kind of deficit reduction stuff they needed to see in that package. And so I think what that, that says is that it's not that, you know, we should never have a debt limit increase or it's that these have no impacts on the market. So there are no consequences. Of course, there's consequences to everything Congress does. The question is, one, who gets to decide what those consequences, um, not what they are, but how we are going to weigh them and how we're going to prioritize things. And then ultimately, how are we going to make decisions? And I think on something like this, where people don't want to cut spending and both parties have a, a track record here. I mean, George W. Bush spent more money than any other president since Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, that Iraq war was pretty costly, huh? No, not this is non-war on terror, non-global war on terror stuff. He spent more money year after year on like the Department of Agriculture. The increases were astonishing. And so I don't, there's, both parties have a vested interest in not tackling these difficult questions because no one likes to prioritize. I get it, I don't like to do it. But that is precisely why you have to have the debt limit is a source of leverage in this moment. Ick, if the system was working, if you could have these big debates, if people were pushing these amendments and offering these bills and they were being voted on in a, in a way that and then the outside was engaging with it as well and everybody could see and then we made that decision, then sure. But right now what's happening is a lot of these fiscal deals, a lot of the things that we say we've already authorized that maybe new members have come in, conditions have changed, maybe they've changed their mind. But a lot of the things, even if none of that was true, a lot of the bills that are passed with all of this spending in it are put on the floor at the last minute. They are confronting members with a fait accompli. They're saying, take it or leave it. They're, they're structuring the debate in such a way to make it really, really, really hard for members to say no. And they're not giving them a lot of time to plan and organize and oppose, which makes passing all of that spending more likely. And then we turn around now and we say, well, well, here we are now. Here's another way that we can get at that. And we couldn't do it that last time, but now let's do it this way. And then we're, you know, you're told, well, no, you can't do that because you already passed this. And I agree. I wish they wouldn't do these kind of like, you know, fiscal cliff type moments. It's not good for the system. But I think the the fact that we're using the debt limit more and more and more to try to get concessions on the deficit, and that could be to cut spending, raise taxes, whatever. But at the end of the day, the fact that we're seeing that is because it's it's the only way to have input in a process that is designed to achieve an outcome regardless of what you think. And that's the, the underlying problem here. And I think that that is an important point that there are not many opportunities in our political process in which we can really have these fights about priorities. So everything gets pushed aside and it winds up burbling over in these moments in which you've got to pass something. And when you've got to pass something and you've got to do something, some holdouts can have incredible power, especially if the parties want to stay unified. And Part of this is it is a reinforcing feedback cycle, what I would call a, a doom loop, if I'm to stay on brand here. Hmm. There's a good book out there called something doom loop. Movie coming. 
Oh, it's already out. Well, they, no one contacted me to play the lead. I'm very upset. Uh, well, you know, when we do the dramatization, you can you can play the lead. I'll definitely give you the lead role. Uh, so, but the the problem is that the leadership has to clamp down on that dissent more and more because it becomes more and more disruptive as it's pushed aside. Right. So we have a Democratic Party in which probably some members of the Democratic Party who would like to negotiate and say, you know, maybe we are spending too much on this or that. And, you know, we, we could afford some cuts here. But anybody steps out of line, Democratic leadership is going to clamp down on that person uh, and punish that person internally. And Republicans, you know, I mean, remarkable unity in this initial bill uh, that they passed, but you know, they know that's not the bill that's going to pass. But when it when it comes down to it, how is McCarthy going to secure all those votes, right? He's got to force people to get on board with something, or maybe he doesn't have the votes and he has to then lose his speakership. The challenge is that as as there's fewer and fewer opportunities for people, rank and file members to participate in the process, they wind up having to use these moments uh, to be more and more disruptive, which then forces leadership to clamp down on them even more, which creates fewer and fewer of these moments. And so we have a fundamentally broken process. I think we would both agree on that. Question is, can you fix it by just creating these occasional moments where all hell breaks loose? Or do we have to start somewhere else to have these disagreements in a space where we can actually have the free-ranging debate so we don't wind up having to attach these fights to these high stakes much must pass the entire economy depends on your cooperation bills? However we decide it, and I agree, yes, we are in a very bad place, but our response to that can be, should we double down on the on the way of thinking about politics that, that contributed to this and led us to this moment, which is that political conflict and disagreement are a bad thing and that we have to insulate ourselves from them. Or do we just let all hell break loose in your words, right? Ultimately, the question is, who decides questions of this magnitude? Where do they decide them and how do they decide them? And this is this is kind of it. This is the big this is the show. This this is the major leagues. This is you don't get any higher than this. Once you go higher than Congress, you're basically taking things outside of politics. And so I think the biggest thing that we have to that we struggle with is that we can't put preconditions on the system. We can say, yeah, outcomes are could be bad, some could be better or worse. But the idea that any any outcome, and I see this a lot in budget circles, and I see this a lot in the debt limit debate, any process, any way of making a decision that leads to anything other than an orderly and predictable increase of the debt limit is not okay. Well, that view right there, I think, is underlining a lot of the dysfunction that we see across all of the issues in Congress, because it's not its not for us to say what the debate produces. That's like, we have to get, we have to roll up our sleeves. We have to engage because at the end of the day, there's only two ways to make collective decisions. One is by violence and the other is by bargaining and negotiation and persuasion or, or politics. And I think ultimately we like the the latter, right? I mean, I think that's where I think we both are. And, but that means that we have to be okay with a little uncertainty at times. That means that we have to be okay. And my guess is if the consequences are as bad, if we go up to the brink and things are terrible and then people weigh in, you know, we have a way of kind of correcting ourselves over time. 
And in a momentary blip, as terrible and as awful as that may be, and I agree, in the grand scheme of things, is you know the fundamental problems that produced that situation are much more important than that momentary blip, right? We can all look to Daniel Shea's rebellion, and we can see the fundamental things that crossed the frontier in America at the time, and the regulator movements, and this idea of you know, and the whiskey rally, and all these other things that are out there, and we can understand them. But then, but we zero in on these the specific debates, and we say, "But this has this outcome has to be this way." And maybe if there had been no Shays Rebellion, there would have been no Constitutional Convention, and then the British and the Spanish and the the French would have picked apart the colonies, and that would have been it for the American experiment. So maybe, who, who maybe knows? I mean I don't know who knows, but I can tell you what: under the Articles, we wouldn't be having a debate about the debt limit. I mean, they could borrow money, but they just couldn't pay their bills, and so eventually, people would just stop giving them money to borrow. I mean, we were in a tough spot, but I think, but a little humility though is good. Americans have always made decisions in groups, in committees, in assemblies, in conventions, in congresses. That's what we've done because we couldn't be the royal governor, right? And so we we waged a war against the most powerful empire in the world out of Congress. Was it a little ugly at times? Yes. Was it inefficient? Yes. Right. But we did it. We have done extraordinary things in this nation via debate and negotiation and bargaining and compromise. And even when the official formal system doesn't work, we still took those same principles and ideas and the concepts of the civil rights movement and Dr. King and nonviolent direct action, the suffrage movement we've talked about on this podcast. That's the fundamental activity at play here, which is we are going to have a discussion one way or the other, and we're all going to make our views known. And out of that, we're going to get a greater understanding of reality in the round. And therefore, then we will be able to make our decision. And that's fundamentally, I think it's, if it works for those things, it can work for the debt limit. And, and you know, is the debt limit going to be increased? Yes, it will be increased. Will it be increased? How? I don't know. But will it be increased with spending cuts? Maybe, maybe not. It depends on how this debate unfolds. I think we should wrap now. And I think one point that for me is coming out of this conversation is the extent to which this debt ceiling fight is seen as particularly dangerous or destructive is really that our political system is not operating in a way that gives an opportunity to deal with these trade-offs over what we spend and how much we spend uh, our collective dollar on. And so instead, these fights get pushed to the margins where they become most dangerous. So, I mean, I, I personally don't think that Congress should have to vote on the debt ceiling constantly, but I also think that we should have these debates constantly about what our priorities are. And uh, yeah, I'm sure there are programs and agencies that could benefit from a trim and other agencies that could probably need a lot more money. Uh, I don't think we should be spending nearly as much on the military, for example. I think we should be spending a lot more on various social welfare programs. But, you know, that's how I think I think we should be having those debates, but we're not, right? Well, if, if you and I were in the in the Senate, well, we wouldn't be in the House. Let's not kid ourselves. But if we were in the Senate, you know, we're, you know, this noble chamber, I would welcome your amendment and I would gladly vote against it, although I'm not a big fan of all the military spending myself either. And I think what you would find is we found on this podcast 
as well over the years is that by engaging and talking, you end up saying, well, you know, I kind of agree with a little of that, a little of that, or maybe you just are really good at this and I'm not. And you set up the world in such a way that I feel pressured, pressured by how you set up that situation to go along with you in the end. And that's okay too. That's politics. It's the shifting shifting of allegiances and fluid coalitions and multidimensionality, right? That's that's what makes politics. And now everything is flattened on this one dimension of is it going to help Democrats or is it going to help Republicans? And people are forced to to play that game instead of the game of of how do we make trade-offs and build interesting coalitions. And that's fundamentally the problem. This is Sounding a lot like the doom loop. So, you know, this is, you know, as as we wrap this up, I just want to, you know, to all our listeners out there, as you're struggling and trying to understand the debt limit and how it's going to, what's going to happen in the end, one, get a copy of Lee's book, read it so you can understand how dysfunctional everything is from Lee's point of view. And then look for me to star in the leading role uh, when the movie hits, um, hits theaters at some point. Um, but no, in, in all seriousness, but in seriousness, do get the book, but seriously, think about it in, in an, in an episodic way. Think about it in terms of what's this thing in front of us right now. The house has passed this bill. What happens next? What's in the Senate? Well, what does that mean? You know, so it's about that next stage. And then they're going to bar, they're going to argue it out and, and pe- different people. Who are the pivotal players? Where are the inflection points? How can the outside make its voice known and influence that process? And then out of that, there's going to be another episode. There's going to be a new inflection point. And then it's going to be a new actor that's going to get engaged. And it's the totality of all of those interactions that unfolds over time that ultimately will tell us what is and is not possible. Because we can't sit here today and say that's going to be possible in the end. And if you wait until you can predict with certainty what's going to be possible before you do anything, then you will never do nothing. Let me put it that way in politics. Complex dynamic system. Yeah. So we'll have another episode, I guess. And who knows what will happen on the next episode. That is certain. That is certain. Well, this has been another episode of Politics in Question. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This podcast is a partnership between New America and the R Street Institute. Our producer is Elizabeth Lucero, and our audio engineer is Shannon Lynch. The theme music is composed and performed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.